I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. I know from my experience as a financial planner that we humans are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. Many of us struggle to see that money is really just a means to an end and that the decisions we make around money can change not only our life, but the life of others as well. I'm going to be speaking with guests from a variety of backgrounds and asking them to share their personal story and the influence money has had along the way. I'm also going to be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions that I've seen my clients wrestle with over the years. My hope is that the shared experience of my guests will help you think maybe differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to episode eight of Money Expresso. Now in this episode, I chat to Holly Mackay, finance and investment expert and founder and managing director of Boring Money. We've recorded this conversation at the end of April, and as I'm preparing for the podcast going live, we're on the edge of our seats, waiting for England to pay Denmark in the Euros, and we'll be know by the time you're listening to this, whether in fact we progress to the finals and won or not. So come on, England. Now, back to Holly. She describes herself as a hippie in a capitalist body. She talks about her mission to democratise finance and the opportunity costs of being an entrepreneur, at the same time as being a mother to two young children. Our conversation covers her love for language and her desire to banish financial gobbledygook. She speaks about the sacrifices of being an entrepreneur and how COVID has been a feast or famine for so many. We talk about the risk of not thinking sustainably when investing, and we spend quite a bit of time philosophizing around the purpose of money, what really matters in life, and how emotions trump rational thinking when making lifestyle decisions. So sit back, grab yourself an espresso and enjoy the conversation. Holly, it's brilliant to have you as a guest on Money Expresso today. Hi Ruth, it's great to be um, chatting to you again. Good, good. Now Holly, there's literally so much we could chat about that I'm going to have to channel my inner Fiona Bruce, I think, to try and keep us on track today. Um, But Maybe you could just give us your nutshell journey to founding Boring Money, um, which I think I've heard you call the financial love child of TripAdvisor and which. That's probably a bit arrogant of me, isn't it? They're quite big brands to, um, to aspire to. But I suppose it's an unusual path, Ruth. If, if you'd asked me age 18, you know, what are you going to do with your life and said finance, I think I would have kind of gone, no, you know, and and (laughs) kind of put my fingers in my ears. So, you know, I'm an arts grad. I did medieval French at uni, (laughs) arguably quite useless, very interesting, pretty unvocational, and ended up working in in film and TV, which sounds probably quite glamorous, but it, it wasn't. In fact, it was quite boring. And on the side, I'd been trading some stocks and shares. We can sort of talk about that later if it comes into the conversation. I suddenly went, do you know what? This investment malarkey is quite interesting. It was around the time of the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. So I did have some beginner's luck. I turned about $1,000 because I was living in Australia at the time into about $2,000. So I thought I was a genius. <laughs> um, wasn't this thing fun? And then embarked on a sort of personal journey with investing and ended up working in the industry. Um, Fast forward, I guess, a couple of years, Ruth, I was back in the UK, I'd worked for some big brands. And I just reached saturation point and I left um, my last proper job in inverted commas was with the 
bank now called Santander, then mm-hmm. Abbey. And I just had a gutful. And I think I probably realised that I was an unemployable sort of person. I wanted to set up my own business and I wanted to do something in investing. And I set up a business which I later sold. But all the way throughout my journey in working in the investment space, you know, I've never lost, I guess, that arts grad thing. And I love words. I love words more than numbers. And I couldn't believe how the investment industry collectively mauled words <laughs> and created pointless, sort of boring, self-aggrandizing gobbledygook, which it would spew out to confused people who would just sort of put their heads in their hands and say, well, someone please talk to me in plain English and tell me what the hell's going on. So that's really the motivating force behind me wanting to set up Boring Money, uh, the aim of which is to help normal people, in inverted commas, to make some better choices with their investments and savings. And it's it's so necessary. I, t- I totally get what you're saying about financial gobbledygook. I mean, I think one of my missions has always been to try to simplify things. And actually, if a client would say to me, Ruth, I actually enjoyed reading that report or I understood what you said. For me, that's me doing my job properly and uh, to get away from the power basin. I mean, why don't you think why do you investment managers, by way of example, not use, you know, they must have family members. They must have children. You know what what precludes them from talking in plain English? I think it's just everyone's everyone's too scared to buck the trend. So I think mm. there's a sort of fear amongst, if you think about people who sort of start off their career and they go and work for Posh and Posh Co, you know, in the Strand or whatever with the mahogany offices, they're not going to walk in as a 30-something and read a report that the great, you know, Pooh Bar has produced and turn around to said great Pooh Bar and say, I don't understand this. Um, I'd like to ask you a question about it or I, none of my mates would like that. So it's like the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? No one wants to call it out and say, because as a 30 something, you know, you might look stupid or if you wrote something in plain English with, with some nice analogies that made people sort of chuckle along the way, there's that fear, I think, that you're not as intellectually capable as someone else I think there is this sort of weird psychology going on where people haven't quite got the guts actually to call time on this this waffle Mm. um and and I think that sort of change Ruth probably has to come from the top doesn't it and Mm. and you know that by the time people get to be a CEO of an investment company unfortunately for many of them I think they see communication and words and websites as a sort of secondary thing to what they do and they tend to be engineering actuarial mathematically inclined people who we need right but but they think that marketing is all a bit fluffy and you'll send it to the coloring in corner for a sort of graduate (laughs) to do so I I just don't think it's been taken seriously enough and I think um, people consistently underestimate how much people value as you were saying earlier knowing what's going on And and if you don't, it's like any other facet of of life. If you don't really understand what's going on, you don't feel out of control. That's you do feel out of control. Sorry, you know, and that's not a nice feeling. No one likes that. 
Um, yeah. I mean, I could rant all day, but I, I just think there's, you know, it it's not taken seriously. And I think the industry collectively underestimates how important it is to people to feel that they've got some sort of sense of what to expect, mm-hmm. where their money might end up, you know, and what's going on around them. And, and that leads to a disconnect, doesn't it? That I think you're right. People don't necessarily associate investment, whether it's in their pension, whether it's in an ISA, with real life and the, the great companies of the world, which ultimately is what we end up investing in, isn't it? It's, yeah, I think that's key, Ruth. So I think you've really sort of touched on a key point there. It's in some weird, opaque pension thingy. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, as you say, I sort of talk to people and say it's no different to, to Dragon's Den, for God's sakes. And that's on primetime TV, right? It's simply sort of thinking about how we can use our money to back innovation and to back growth and to back the world's future sort of dominant companies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sure we're going to come back and talk a bit more about investing, but just for a moment, Holly, I want to whiz you back in time to when you were small Holly and growing up. Did, did money get spoken about, uh, you know, around the dinner table or in your family? Well, a, a bit. Um, my dad, um, is now a retired Scottish accountant. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, actually, but but he didn't bring his, his work home particularly. I, I don't think it was money so much, but it was, I was thinking about this today, Ruth, actually. It was, um, my mum ran her own business. So when I grew up from quite a young age, I had probably quite an unusual role model there because mm. this was sort of the mid 80s. Um, Mum had given up her career to have children. I think everything back then was a bit more binary. Yeah. Um, and I think she'd got a bit bored and thought, you know, I don't, I, I'm not happy just doing the school run, something I completely <laughs> empathise with. Um, I, I want to do something else. She was a really talented cook and she set up and ran her own catering business. And I was thinking back um, just this morning, as I said, I mean, she would cook weddings for weddings, you know, and cook 120 covers of Coco Van from our tiny family kitchen and and do all this sort of amazing stuff. So I think, you know, for me, money wasn't discussed so much, but I did have a job from the age of about 10 because I went and handed around these really sort of exciting 70s style canapes at weddings <laughs> for mum. I'd, I'd sit around the kitchen table at the weekend cutting up glacé cherries and pieces of pineapple and cocktail onions to put onto cubes of cheddar cheese. I'd hand those around. So I, there, there was probably looking back, you know, quite a strong entrepreneurial streak mm. in the family. And I did very, from a very young age, have quite a strong correlation between the concept of of having a job, earning money. I had an account with the Nationwide. I'd sort of trot off into town with my little passbook and put my five pounds in and and see that sort of grow. Um, So we didn't talk about money so much, but I did from quite an early age, um, you know, have have those those jobs, and I could have that job from the age of about ten because I worked for my mum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and really strong role models there in in your mum and and your dad to to an extent. De- I, I definitely think so. The, the other thing that was quite formative was my my grandpa. He came to see us one 
Christmas Day for lunch and I think he had too much wine. I remember, you know, that sort of thing where you go, why are the grown-ups all being weird? <laughs> and he was being a bit weird. And then I was going to sit a scholarship for the sort of posh secondary school and um, I had the exam coming up and he'd obviously had too much wine because he said, if you get the scholarship, Holly, he's from Edinburgh, I won't do a bad Edinburgh accent, you know, I'll give you a hundred pounds. Um, you know, this was someone that used to give me 50p sort of periodically. Wow. So I was like, wow. And I did. I ended up sort of doing quite well in that test. So he gave me £100, which I sort of trotted off to the nationwide, um, deposited that and, you know, would then top it up with my earnings from my mum's um, catering business. And, and that was sort of, that was quite formative. It did sort of teach me in a really sort of black and white way you know, how, how to save. I also went and spent it occasionally. That was great fun too. Go and buy a rara skirt down down the town centre on a Saturday. Oh, I remember rara skirts. Um, <laughs> two tiers or three, Ruth? <laughs> 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 um, and then later on, you mentioned my, my dad. My dad um, has always been a very tinny investor. Mm. He's always been deeply contrarian um, and, and quite a successful DIY investor. And that didn't interest me when I was a teenager. But in my 20s, it was quite interesting. I was living in Australia at the time. And, you know, we didn't have FaceTime sort of then. And and we used to send each other faxes or have very expensive phone calls. Gosh, I sound so old, don't I? (laughs) Back in the 1800s. And as a 20-something, you know, I think it's quite hard for fathers to talk to sort of daughters. And there weren't, you know, naturally, natural sort of conversations we had. But then we started to talk about the stock market. And we used to have these great games and sort of jokes. And I remember one time he'd bought some dodgy Filipino nickel, something or other. And I bought (laughs) some Uruguayan copper thing. And and it was our, it was our thing and we sort of bonded over it Mm. and it gave us something to talk about so he definitely you know is either to blame or to thank for my interest in in the stock market yeah really practical experiences and I like your granddad's lesson of that correlation between hard work and reward with the with the hundred pound that was forthcoming and it was such a lot of money at the time and it was just so exciting Ruth and actually I've still got that nationwide account as an aside so so funny because I had the 100 pounds and then I sort of you know I don't know something happened I kind of turned into I I went to uni or something got another account and I suddenly remembered it I was back at my parents house I must have been in my late 30s and I found this pocketbook and (laughs) thing from it nationwide and I went into the account it had some money left in it not much at all to try and close it down and they wanted me to fill out all these forms to close it down yeah and I said well how much do I need to leave in it to keep it open and they said a pound so I took out everything and just left a pound in so somewhere I'm sorry nationwide because they probably lost an awful lot of money from having me as a customer because once every few years I I get a letter from them saying you've got a pound in it still but it was definitely um you know, it was a big gesture from my grandpa. And I think it was a real sort of turning point for for me. And I, I, I loved having that nationwide account in my teens. And it's a relic today. Now, <laughs> I'm interested in um, the mind of an entrepreneur. And you've given us a bit of background there, which I think possibly helps in my um, 
my my understanding. But I know when you sold your first business, it was around about the time we got to know each other. And, um, you know, some people might have thought, well, actually, I've done really rather well. I'm going to put my feet up um, uh, and actually not do very much. And uh, and we may even have had that conversation at that point. And you came back for more. And here you are about five or so years into boring money. What what drove you to do this second business? And Ruth, that is a question I ask myself almost every day throughout the last 12 months as COVID raged and homeschooling hit and all our clients temporarily stopped spending money. I was like, what on earth have you done, silly woman? Um, I don't think it was ever really a a choice. I'm busy, Ruth. I don't sit still. My idea of hell is going from manicure. I'm the person that leaves the hair salon, not that I go at all at the moment, um, with wet hair because I just can't be. I'm on the move. So, um, and for me, this, in a way, I think my first business was a warm up Mm -hmm. for this, this second business. And it's such a, it's such a big job to do, Ruth. You know, money is not well understood by by people because it's not well explained. People don't have a lot of choice when it comes to financial advice. It's still quite a rigid model for the more affluent people. Um, you know, people make poor decisions. People sit in cash because they're scared of the alternatives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was such a sort of clear need, um, and I thought. I had a fair sort of I had a fair chance of being able to do it a little bit better than it had been done before and it's sort of a bit like a logic problem and I I wanted to solve it and I was genuinely interested in in doing it um and to be honest Ruth I didn't actually think about it which probably sounds daft doesn't it but I just I had a month off when I sold my first business And I went away to Italy for a month with the kids, which was lovely. And I just came back and started writing blogs again. And I didn't even really ever sit down and have that conversation with myself. Am I going to do this again? Um, I just I just sort of did it, Um, which is probably a very bad answer, isn't it? I probably should have sort of sat down, thought it through, done lots of plans. But, you know, and I do occasionally now sit back and it's been an awful lot of hard work and the last four to five years I've made sacrifices with my time you know my kids are getting a little bit older now I question you know have I been a good mum all of that guilt stuff should I have done it could I have done it why didn't I just sort of pocket the money from the sale of my first business and have tennis lessons with a handsome young coach <laughs> and go out for lunch but I would have been bored Ruth would, yeah. uh, so I suppose it's just not in in my nature and mm. I'm genuinely so interested in what I'm trying to solve yeah that I think I would just write about this stuff and do it anyway even if there wasn't a sort of business model around it I, you know so I, I love I love what I do and I want to, I want to crack it. I, I want to, you know, we're still on a journey with boring mm. money. We're not there yet, but I can see the end goal now mm. much more clearly than I could when I started it up. 
and I want to do it. <laughs> but I have asked myself an awful lot of times yeah. over the last year what on earth I was doing. Oh, God. I mean, you mentioned COVID. I mean, gosh, it's been such a tricky year for so many people. And I know, I, you know, for you, like running a business that's, okay, it's not a startup, but it's still a young business, trying to manage that from home, homeschool um, as a single mom, you know, that that's tough. And um, how have you seen some of those challenges play out with your your clients, your consumers that contact Boring Money? Is it causing obvious problems that you're noticing? I, I definitely think, I think one thing about COVID, it was, it was sort of feast or famine. And I think people had very different experiences. There were some people who, I mean, I remember reading some of the sort of articles in about April, May last year, where I literally thought I was going to go nuts because I was working so hard from people who are on furlough at home going oh I'm I'm learning Spanish or <laughs> my garden's looking lovely and I was like oh my god I can barely keep food in the fridge how, how are you doing that I think also financially um there are a lot of people out there who are, have built up large cash reserves mm. because they haven't been out and they haven't been spending. Um, and you can see that from the Bank of England data, you know. So there is a there is a large um, quantity of people out there who, who have cash to spend. Yeah. Conversely, of course, you know, there are people out there who have been absolutely hammered. Um, I particularly sort of think, you know, the the self-employed, people who run small businesses. Um, so I think it's been a tale of two cities. And I think, you know, that that comes through in sort of people who, who are contacting us. Um, the other thing is, I think that people have had time to reflect and time to think about what they want, how best to manage their financial affairs. Um, it, it's changed you know, how people expect to receive financial advice. Mm. So you know, in the old days, it was just the received wisdom in the old days. I mean, two years ago, <laughs> it was received wisdom that if you had a financial advisor, all of those conversations were in the office. There was the big ceremony. Here's the posh coffee. I don't know if you did that, Ruth. But, you know, um, come into our office. Here's the biscuits. Here's the big review. Chit chat, chit chat, um, face to face. And actually, a lot of people I've talked to about that have suddenly gone, Oh, I don't know if I want to go back and have mm. all those meetings face to face because people raise two things, which I think is really funny. Um, it's why I love talking to people about money and not just doing anonymous surveys online because you get to the real heart of it. And people raise, I don't want to have to put on smart clothes to talk to a financial advisor. I don't want to have to put on a tie yeah. and go through the whole sort of drama of going for the meeting and parking yeah. People are going, oh, my God, I used to have to go somewhere and then sort of park and, and faff around. So I think sort of, you know, I think from from what people say to me, there's still that desire when you're first meeting an advisor or you're setting up that relationship. There's something about eyeballing someone, isn't it, where mm. it's such a trusted relationship mm. and seeing them in the flesh. But I think more and more for ongoing sort of comms, catch up, whatever, Um you know, that as much as we're all sick of Zoom now, as our lives return to some more balanced sort of mix of, of, of Zoom meetings and face-to-face -face meetings, I think more and more people will want shorter periodic check-ins with their advisor yeah. using Zoom. 
I think that's been exactly our experience. In fact, you know, we're, we're, we're currently holding conversations about not only our physical return to work as, as, as partners in the business, but, but also how that will carry out for clients. And I'm convinced there will be a significant number of clients that, you know, as you say, why would you want to slap into London if you could, you know, sit comfortably with your own cup of coffee and have a 45 minute chat rather than spending four hours? So, yeah, I, I can really see that uh, been a been a change and you also mentioned about you know people have been you know saving money in cash trying to think what to do do you one of the subjects I know that you're interested in and you talk to your your consumers a lot about is the subject of risk and in fact I heard you on a podcast recently um talking about Mark Carney um, who I think you're a fan of for a number of reasons. Um, I know I've got a crush on Mark Carney. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's so aging. He's the silver fox, though. I mean, he's very wise and wonderful. And, you know, of course, I'm interested in purely his economic view. Of course, of course, Holly. <laughs> That's what I was referring to. But um, Mark Carney talks about risk um, and the risk of climate change and how that might impact investment and decisions and the way we as investors and consumers should be thinking about what we do with our money how's that playing out in 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 your in your world I think I mean in particularly in relation to to climate change I mean the thing we've seen is that is even just two or three years ago if we talked to most investors about whether you call it sustainable investing or ESG, environmental, social and governance sort of led investments, there was still a bit of a sort of sense that it was all, you know, a bit hippie sort of nonsense stuff. And, and was this sort of really important to, to the investment um, discussion? Um, but I think now there's a lot more sort of clarity around. And for me, it's a fundamentally it's actually a vital thing for any investor to think about. And, and you know, you can think about examples, you know, the BP oil spill, what happened to the BP share price after that. You can look at groups like Sports Direct or Boohoo, which have been sort of involved in various sort of scandals about how awfully, allegedly, they treat their staff. Um, you can look at any number of governance scandals. I mean, people will remember the Enron collapse, more recently, Carillion. So, so I think for me, um, when we talk about all those sorts of factors, environment, social and governance, they're absolutely just a no brainer because, you know, if we look at investments from the traditional perspective, what happens? A group comes out and they've got their announcements and they have their sort of AGM and their annual results. We're just looking at the past three months, really, then, Ruth, about the P&L and how well they've done. We're not thinking to the future and what could potentially come and sort of hit these guys in the face. So for me, it, it's just it's gone from being, oh, is this a sort of thing that I want to think about to becoming a really fundamental part of of every investor's portfolio. Um, I think more specifically on climate change, it's, it's very difficult at the moment for us as lay people to know, even if we want to use our money to back companies which are fundamentally not destroying the planet, 
to actually then follow that through and find a fund which you're convinced is doing that mm. is incredibly difficult. And the conversation, not to go into this sort of too deeply, but the conversation gets quite tricky because it's one thing to say, oh, I'm just going to avoid any company that's got anything to do with fossil fuels. But if you think about who's got the money and the financial impetus to explore clean energy and green energy and how we might do that. It's some of today's worst culprits. So there's a kind of very difficult sort of process there where you go, if we starve them of capital, actually, and they can't get money from the world's stock markets, they'll go and get money from from private equity, Mm. from private individuals. They won't be publicly owned, will have no say in their future, Mm. and it all goes underground and a bit murky. So I think it's a hugely interesting topic. Um, I know our readers are sort of increasingly interested in it. Mm. Um, and, and, And for me, the sort of big challenge in it is trying to read again back to the fund managers gobbledygook (laughs) and go okay but under the bonnet are you really doing this or do you just bung the word sustainable in your sort of fund name and then go aren't we marvelous and and wait for the money to roll in and I think there's a real anxiety isn't there from investors around that greenwashing and you know what is actually happening and how is how are these ESG credentials actually really living out I tell you what, if I hear one, if I hear one more fund manager trot out this line, you can play your readers and listeners can play bingo with it. ESG has been in our DNA, you know, since 1066. (laughs) It's like, just listen for that line. ESG has been in our DNA for dot, dot, dot years. I promise you, once you start noticing it, it's everywhere. And now I just crack up. I'll tune in. Um, Holly, one of the things that always fascinates me about money and the way we all are as human beings, so this is talking about you personally and and not your readers, um, are the spending choices we make and where we're happy to spend money without thought and areas where we begrudge and notice (laughs) every penny. How does that play out for you? I yeah I've been thinking about this a bit most recently actually because I'm not a natural spender and I don't I'm not a magpie Ruth I've never Mm. really coveted you know for me the idea of spending a thousand pounds on a handbag is just like why would you you can go to Topshop and get a nice one for Mm. 60 quid um so there's very few areas of my life where I spend in what I'd kind of consider a profligate way to the extent that when I sold my first business and I did make a decent amount of money from it. And I remember talking to someone about a month after, because to my horror, this was all in the press, right? Because my business was bought by a listed company. So it was very, very public, which I found mortifyingly embarrassing. And, and this old chap sort of said to me, oh, have you bought yourself a new car then? You know, obviously <laughs> his, his dream sort of thing. And I went, yeah, actually, as, as it happens, I did. And his eyes glistened. Like, oh, <laughs> and he said, what did you buy? And I said, oh, I bought my dad's 20-year-old Nissan X-Trail for £2,000 because I love driving cars where it doesn't matter if you 
you drive into walls and things yes. like that and you bounce off the hedgerows and who cares and he was very disappointed very disappointed in that <laughs> that, that story um but it just i the one exception to that is i've always spent money on holidays i love mm. traveling mm. um i think i'm a hippie and a hidden in a capitalist body i love southeast asia the backpackers trail all of that yeah. so you know i will spend money on going to far-flung places and occasionally treating myself to a night in a sort of lovely hotel like raffles when i went to cambodia you know gorgeous um but apart from that ruth i haven't spent much money and and when you know you asked me to come on this podcast and you said you were going to, to to talk to me about money it is something i've been questioning a bit more i think since since covid since <clears throat> lockdown i've obviously <clears throat> excuse me been spending a lot more time at home which mm. is looking a bit ramshackle i'm looking out the window now there's weeds all over the garden um and i've sort of you know i, I when i sold my first business i, I bought a property and, and paid off a mortgage and, and did a few things but i i haven't really had cash flow you know I haven't had sort of cash sitting around and I haven't really spent anything Ruth and so I'm suddenly sitting here going okay I might have these assets yeah but they're just kind of hieroglyphics on paper mm. you know they don't they don't do much for me they give me I'm, I'm not meaning to sound spoilt in any way shape or form they give me a backup right they're my armor it's my security blanket and I know I'm very lucky and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for all of that I don't mean to underplay that but I have been sitting around a bit more going should I just sell those bricks and mortar and and buy stuff and it's not something that comes naturally to me mm. as, as a thought process but I'd like to go on a really nice posh holiday. Mm. I mean, when I say posh, I don't mean somewhere sort of, you know, horrible, some some sort of antiseptic sort of big posh hotel. I'm quite happy in a beach hut, but, you know, yeah, yeah. eat well, fly well, <laughs> have the luxury to go and have a posh G&T in a posh hotel bar, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, should I just get someone in to fix up the garden? Mm. Should I do this? Should I spend a thousand pounds on a handbag, Ruth? Mm. I mean, I don't think, and, and also I know this is really vain, but I'm looking at Zoom now. I've been on Zoom all year. My mum would be horrified. I hope she doesn't listen to this. I've even been thinking about, should I get Botox? You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm having that sort of, I don't know, maybe it's my midlife crisis, Ruth, coming up, but I'm suddenly going, you know, wh what is the point of all this hard work? And all the sacrifices that you make if you run run your own business and, and all of the time that you put in, if you don't spend it on the occasional sort of shiny thing. Well, so I, I'm having that sort of question at the moment. It's, and it's such a valuable thing to think about, isn't it? Because, you know, what is money for? And, you know, I've spent years talking to clients and typically the answers that come out are freedom, security, choice time and when you're growing a business of course some of those things are pretty constrained for you but nonetheless you know I yeah I would say what is money for and and a, and a subject I want to come back to in, an, in another podcast is the second home dilemma you, you know the the benefits or otherwise of 
having money tied up in assets that possibly you use frequently or infrequently and the additional complications that can bring to life. So Mm. money's a fascinating thing and you're absolutely right to couch it in, you know, these aren't easy discussions. And I know if anybody's listening and, you know, think, oh God, poor you having a second home, that's not what we're meaning. It, It genuinely is you know, what is important to us in life, what really matters. And, uh, you know, they're not easy questions to answer, um, I think. And and I also sort of am very conscious too that that material possessions, you know, don't, don't plug the gap, do they? And I also think something over the last sort of 12 months where my behaviours possibly change, I've talked about my love of travel just now, but I was thinking about the October half term, you know, I want some sunshine. I might have just rushed in the past to book to go somewhere with the kids, but I suddenly went, hang on, I just want to go and see my mum and dad. Yeah. And, and so there's that sort of the flip side of the coin is the things that I have missed. I'm sure I'm like everyone, right? Mm. The things that I've craved over the last 12 months don't actually cost very much money which takes me back to the thing is like you know I could go and buy that a thousand pounds handbag probably Mm. I'm lucky to be in a position to be able to say that it makes me feel a bit flippant but Mm. to illustrate the point you know I could go and do that I'm probably just going to walk you know it's like driving a new car out of the showroom I couldn't bring myself to do it Ruth because I'd just be weeping inside about how every mile I drove had cost me about a thousand pounds as I drove away from the showroom but the things that you know we've craved over the last year a pint in a pub garden Mm. a chat with a friend Mm. um, a hug from my mum you know those those have those don't cost money do they Mm. so you know and, and to your point by the way about the second home absolute flipping nightmare over the last 12 months a, a total money drink because I let it out as well or attempt to let it out but you know I went there for a week um just recently it's in Devon um and it was magic mm. and 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 being able to go there and it, it made me realize actually I've looked at this through an investment lens in the past it it, it isn't really the primary thing it's doing for me is not generating me an income. Yeah. It's giving me access to a part of the world that I love. Yeah. And actually very often the decisions we make and the things that we purchase, I think ultimately when you boil it down is an emotional decision, isn't it? And, and actually recognizing that value just for that is it makes it worthwhile, doesn't it? And uh, that's lovely to hear. Lovely to hear. Um, as somebody was brought up in Devon, it's a beautiful part of the world to, to escape to. Now, Holly, I'm going to ask you a, a slightly flippant question, which I like to ask all of my guests. Um, what have you spent about £30 on over the last 12 months that's brought you pleasure? Can I go a bit more than £30? Mm. I get what you're trying to do. I, I go spent- on hundred pounds on possibly the world's largest paddling pool and it's seriously I mean it's amazing it's about four meters long yeah and two meters wide that's like a swimming pool in many gyms it's like it's my swimming pool this is (laughs) back to it cost me a hundred pounds and last summer 
I was lying in it like some sort Hang of. Hang on a second, did you like for the kids? <laughs> Sorry? Oh, like well, you know, yeah. I was just checking, you know, health yeah. and safety check, Bruce, that it was all appropriate for them. Um, I was lying in it as the sun was going down. We live in the middle of nowhere, so it was sort of pretty much in a field with a glass of wine in my hand oh. and going, do you know what? This is, this is, I don't need a swimming pool. I spent a hundred pounds and this thing, I swear, you know, the marginal kind of cost per use of that thing is next to nothing now. So, um, yeah, that, that padding Brilliant. pool, I mean, just mega. <laughs> Such a good story with that, Holly. I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you stretch my 30 pound by 3.3 times. There's a financial plan really coming out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, what's that amongst friends, Ruth? You know, absolutely. Oh, you didn't say a bottle of Gabby, which was the other thing I thought you were going to say. Oh well, that's 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 just a permanent feature yeah. of of you know my my life over the last twelve months. There was a traumatic week. It wasn't a week; it was a couple of days actually in lockdown where I ran out of white wine, which was frankly careless, Ruth, and and not something I'll be doing again. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I had you down as a forward planner, Holly, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, one, one doesn't necessarily forward plan for the sort of consumption levels that were going on in April last year, Ruth. But um, yes, I, I quickly rectified that problem. And, pleased to hear, pleased to hear. Well done, you. Um, Holly, I've loved talking to you. I, we could ramble on for hours, um, but I know you've got other things to do. So... I'm just going to ask you to do one more thing, if I may. Um, I always like to leave our listeners with a money pearl of wisdom. What would your Holly money pearl of wisdom be? I think, and it depends on the age range of the people listening in. For people in their 30s and 40s, it's, it's so boring, Ruth. It's like, if you don't have a pension, go online pick one and just put 50 quid in it right just it's like going to the gym buy the kit first that's the sort of fun bit isn't it but just do it uh, and for um older people listening in who may have kids or, or godchildren um if they haven't done it do it for them it, it's just i i you know remember in my 30s because i worked in the investment industry i opened up kind of reluctantly a DIY pension thingy with fidelity yeah. online mm -hmm. I've still got that thingy and compound interest and just paying the odd yeah. bit in here and there really really makes a difference and I think so many people don't do something like that because they let it become the most enormous decision and people mm. get frightened of making a bad decision or getting it wrong you won't get it wrong you know go our website's got sort of best buy tables any of them will be fine you know yeah. just just set up a, a, a pension and even if it's 50 quid just just do it don't panic about it not being perfect it will be better than nothing don't let perfection get in the way of progress i love that oh golly I have learned to really espouse that over the last 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> Step at a time, day by day. Day What's by day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Holly, look, it's been fabulous speaking to you. And um, thank you very much for your time. It's been and really interesting. Thank you, I Ruth. really hope our viewers, viewers, listeners, are going to come and have a look at your website i'll make sure it's in the show notes because that's what we podcast people say um but check holly out at boring money and all the great work she and her team are doing thanks holly see you soon thank you for having me bye 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 
doesn't Holly speak with such sincerity and common sense? I really enjoyed our conversation and her openness and around how COVID has made her question not only how she's living her life, but how she's spending her money. Has COVID made you feel differently about money and life? I know it has for many. Drop me a line and let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Now, before you go, let me tell you about our next Money Expresso episode due out on Monday, the 26th of July. My guest is one of my colleagues from Paradigm Norton, Martin Ruskin. Now, you may wonder why I'm going to be chatting to one of my colleagues. My view here is that if we're asking our guests to tell us about their money and life, it's only right that we should ask one of our sponsors to do so too. So I'm really looking forward to letting you hear this conversation with Martin. He speaks really openly, very honestly, and at times it's a very moving conversation. It will be out in a couple of weeks, so look forward to that. Have a great week and thank you once again for listening. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you. <music>